Well, church, we've been in a series the last, uh, man, five weeks or so called I Fear God, where we've closely studied what it means to see and know God as he is, to stand in awe and reverence of him. And we've used the language that it's not just the, the wow of God, but it's the woe of God as well. I'm going to close the series out today because, you know, I couldn't not get in on this series. It's too good of a topic. Uh, it's too meaningful to us. And I want to just uh, take a moment today to study um, very common and recurring language used throughout the Bible regarding fear. Specifically, I want to talk about the prevalence of fear in our lives, God's very frequent command to fear not, and the wisdom in our response to fear God. The title of my message today is Fear, Fear Not, Fear God. Turn with me to Genesis 3, and as you do, would you stand for the reading of the word? We're going to look at three passages in Genesis today. Uh, the first time that we see fear, the first time we see God's command to fear not, and the first person who is acknowledged for fearing God. This is Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10, and this is the word of the Lord. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Creator, our Master, our Lord, our Savior, would you, O oh God, join us in this place today. God, we are seeking a revelation that comes only from you, that would press upon our hearts and upon our minds, that we would see you as you are holy, righteous, and worthy. Heavenly Father, without you today, we can't get nearly as far as we need to go. So Lord, would you give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and a heart that can understand what the spirit of the living God is trying to say to us in this place today. Lord, would the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing, O Lord, and acceptable to you in the name of Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen, and you can be seated. I wonder if growing up, you, um, you had the experience that I had, which is when your mom uses your dad as the ultimate threat during the day. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I know some of you were very well-behaved children. You don't know anything that I'm talking about. But some of us are like me and Pastor Corey. Some of us caused problems in the household growing up. Some of us acted up and kept acting up even when we were asked to stop acting up. And mom might have disciplined us, might have corrected us, might have told us not to stop, might have made all kinds of threats and all of that, but nothing would slow you down because you were just in one of those moods on that day. Have you ever been there before? And you're just pulling on her last nerve until finally she says the dreaded words, just wait until your father gets home. And then everything's a joke, at least if you're mean, oh, mom, I'm just kidding. No, I, I'm just messing with you, mom. You know, it's no big deal. Like, you know, I'm just, mom, I love you. Like, it's okay. And she's just not responding. She's just letting you sit there with the reality that's settling in upon you, that the hours are ticking away. And sooner or later, that car is going to pull into the driveway. That door is going to shut and those feet are going to come up the steps. And then, welcome to the Thunderdome. <laughs> it's on, right? Like, when I get home now... My wife doesn't even need to tell me what happened. She just, I come in the door, just get your sons. I'm like, let's go, boys. 
I don't need to know what happened. I just need to know mama is, is done and tired of it. You ever been there? Anybody grow up like me? That is the singular picture I get when I think of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's like everything's all good. We just chat with the serpent. We just eating the fruit of the tree of the, we're not supposed to eat. Adam, come on, have some. It's all great. Don't worry about it. And then Adam hears God coming up the steps. And then it's all, get some leaves. We got to cover up. We got to get out of here. We can't be around God. You can't see us. What happened to Adam and Eve in that moment? It's the same thing that happens to all of us when accountability comes knocking on our door. It's the same thing that happens to us when we all of a sudden realize that our actions have consequences. See, it was all good when the consequences were far away. And then comes a moment where the consequences are staring you in the face and you become overwhelmed by fear. Fear for what's about to happen. Fear for what comes next. Fear is one of the most common and prevalent emotions you will ever fear, but be feel. But for Adam and Eve, this was likely the first time they had ever felt it. And it was all a result of their sin. When sin entered, so did fear. It was a result of disobeying God and realizing not only have I done wrong, but I don't know what comes next. First thing I want to talk about today is that fear is a result of the fall. This passage, Genesis 3, is the first time we see the word yare in Hebrew, fear or dread. It's the first time we see it in the scripture. And it comes following Adam and Eve, seeing their nakedness, which causes them to run and hide from God. Now here's what I want you to get. We all feel fear, but what we do in response to fear is always interesting but it's rarely ever rational. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Our response to fear is always interesting. It's rarely ever rational. Like what good is a startle reflex? You no, know, if you think about it, what purpose does a startle reflex serve in you? Somebody comes up behind you, or if you're my wife, I just walk in the room and it's like, boom. I'm like, I live here. I've been here all day. <laughs> what good does that do? What good, do, and I've really debated, is like, should I, should I act out a startle reflex or is that too cringeworthy? I, I don't know. I did it, so we did it. But what purpose does that serve you? It's interesting. It's very funny. But it's not really rational. And in the same way, Adam and Eve, when they experience fear for the first time, they react in a way that is interesting, but it's not really rational. It says they covered themselves, they ran from God as if they could get away from him, and then they hid in the garden which is the most conspicuous thing you can do when you have spent all of eternity up to that point walking around with God naked. Now all of a sudden, we need some leaves. We gotta get away. Like, they didn't think it through. Our response to fear is rarely ever rational because our fear is rarely ever rational. Now, people who wrestle with fear a lot, they can always justify why they're afraid. But I'm not talking about justifying it. The Bible says man can justify his every deed, but the Lord looks at his heart. I'm not talking about justifying your fear. I'm talking about whether that fear is rational or not. Because I believe Adam and Eve's response to the Lord exposes the deeper effect of their sin. It wasn't just that they were afraid of what comes next. It was that they were afraid now of God. 
When they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says their eyes were open. They were aware of their nakedness and they saw their shame. And so when they hear God coming, they become afraid because for the first time it crossed their mind that if they could see their nakedness, then maybe God would too. And they didn't know how God would respond when he saw them uncovered. And that thought terrified them. Because they had seen the awesomeness of God, the wow, the beauty and the wonder of his creation, the fruitfulness of his provision. They had enjoyed every day in the garden and lived under his blessing. And they knew him like that. But it wasn't until they sinned that they came face to face with the reality that there was another side of God they had not yet seen. The what is dad going to do when he gets home side. The what's going to come after this moment. And although God had seen them uncovered their whole lives, although God knew everything about them, there was a new factor in the equation in this moment, and they didn't know how God would respond when he saw them like this. But here's the truth I need you to catch. God had already seen all of it. Before they sinned, God had even seen their potential for sin. He gave them that choice and that ability to do it. What changed is that Adam and Eve saw it. They saw what they were capable of. God had seen it. God had known about it. And up to this point, nothing about what God already knew about them had changed the way God had acted towards them. God had treated them the same. He had loved them the same. And this is the same truth that is true for your life. That there are things that you might be hiding from God. There might be truths about yourself that you're not ready or willing to admit about yourself. But can I just tell you, God has already seen it. God, God already knows about it, and it hasn't affected how he's treated you, and it hasn't changed his love for you. God's desire is that you would see it, and when you do see it, that you would run to him instead of, as Adam and Eve did, run away from him. But they couldn't see it because they were overwhelmed by their fear, and all they were looking at was themselves, and it made them so afraid of God that they couldn't see him. So in some sense, the first fear in the Bible is a fear of God, but it's not the reverent, worshipful, awe-filled fear of God we've been talking about. This is a strict fear of wrath, punishment, and death. And it was that fear that gave birth to every other fear we have experienced throughout all of human history. All of fear is a response to the fall. Why do you fear sickness and death? Because sin allowed sickness and therefore death to enter into the human story. Why do you fear rejection? Because sinful people have hurt you and have rejected you. Why do you fear man? Because you have seen what man is capable of when they operate outside of the will of God. Every fear you've experienced is a result of the fear. And to this day, fear that sin produces still has us running from God and acting irrationally. But I want to tell you the story of another man in the Bible, somebody else who came face to face with his own sin as he stood before God, but he has an entirely different response, an entirely different approach to God. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah the prophet who has a vision of the Lord seated on a throne. It says the train of his robe is filling the temple. You get the picture, you, he can't even see the head or the face of God. That is, how, that is how big this image of God is as he stands before him. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah's response is this. Woe is me, for I am lost. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I love this because Isaiah, much like Adam and Eve, also sees himself and sees his sin. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. But what's different about Isaiah is that Isaiah didn't just see himself. He saw the grandeur and the holiness and the majesty of God. And it was seeing God that caused him to acknowledge his sin and the repercussions of it. Isaiah saw his sin, but he also saw the Lord. Oh, but my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it was seeing God seated on his throne that changed the way that Isaiah responded. Adam and Eve saw themselves and they hid. Isaiah saw himself, but he also saw the king. So if you're here today, like I know many of us have come into the church building before, and all you can see before you is your sin. All you can see before you is your shortcoming. All you can see before you is the mess that you've made with your life. Can I just encourage you to get your eyes on the king? to lift your eyes to the one that is seated on the throne, to see him highly and lifted up, to see his majesty, his beauty, his grandeur, his awesomeness, because when you see him, you don't respond the same. You don't respond with fear. You grieve over your sin. And you respond with repentance. Because when you see the Lord, you understand the depths of your sin in light of the beauty of the one you've sinned against. I wonder if you've ever had that moment. I'm not talking about the moment when you realized you were doing things that were bad. I'm not talking about the moment when when somebody in church said that that action is a sin. And you said, oh, okay, now I know it's a sin. I'm talking about the moment when you realize that you did those actions in spite of an almighty and righteous God who loves you and created you for fellowship with him. When you realize that you were handmade by God, artfully crafted with good purposes to be blessed by him, made with deep love and deep intentionality, and you respond to that love with instant rejection and instant betrayal. I'm not asking when did you realize you first messed up. I'm asking when did your sin first break your heart? When did it bring you to your knees? Not because you feared hell, but because you offended the Holy One who loves you with a perfect love. Because if all we see is sin, sin will produce fear in us. And there's a place for that because we ought to remember that the Lord God will judge sin. He will. That's real. It's going to happen. But if you look past your sin and you see the one you've sinned against, you not only see his awesomeness, you get to know his character. And you get to know that he, like it says in 1 John 4, that God is love. And what does perfect love do? It casts out fear. If you see yourself, if you see your sin, you will be afraid, or you ought to be. You ought to be afraid of what happens in response to your sin. But if that's all you see, you're missing the whole picture because on the other side of that is a righteous God with a perfect love. And when you see the king and you remember his love, that fear begins to melt away. You cannot truly repent of and receive forgiveness for sin that you don't think offends God. 
then you cannot truly repent of or receive forgiveness for sin that you don't think God will judge. So my question is, have you stood uncovered before the Lord? Have you looked upon your own nakedness? But more than that, have you seen him? So when we see him, we can respond as Isaiah does, to fall on our knees and allow the hand of God to purify us and wash us clean. Let us not live in fear. Let us live out of love and look upon the love of God and allow that love to drive fear away so that we can respond with repentance. Amen? All right, secondly, God's first command to fear not. Uh, do not fear is one of the most, it might be the most frequent command that God gives in all of Scripture. And this, Genesis 15.1, is the first time we see it. So let's take a look and see what we can learn about it. Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So after these things, now we've got to talk about what these things are. So Abram, if you don't know, later is called Abraham. He is the man chosen by God to be the father of many nations. God had promised Abram that he would make Abram's name, name great in the earth, that he would bless him in such a way that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Abram was promised all the land he could lay eyes on. He was promised children that would outnumber the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. And Abraham, Abram believed that God would be faithful to do what he said that he would do. But at this moment, in Genesis 15:1, he hasn't seen much of that promise come to pass. So we know that Abram has promised something amazing. We know that promise has not come to pass, but we also know that his family is very important to God. And prior to the passage that we just read, there had been a great battle. And I am calling this battle the Battle of Nine Armies. It's like a Lord of the Rings type of shout out. You can also call it the Battle of the Sedim Valley. Take your pick. Let me tell you a story about this battle. It takes place in modern day Israel in the cities that surrounded the Dead Sea. And there we find five Canaanite cities who had rebelled against their four Mesopotamian overlords. And what happens is after that rebellion, the four kings of Mesopotamia launch a campaign to reassert their control over the region, which is called the Sedim Valley. Their plan is to capture the rebels and take all their possessions and put them back in check. And they do just that. They capture all the people and they take all of their possessions. However, in one of those cities, the city of Sodom, is a man named Lot. And Lot has a wife and a few children. And Lot just happens to be the nephew of Abram. Abram, the man whose family is very important to God. So when Abram hears that Lot and his family and all their possessions, as well as all the possessions of all the people and all the cities were captured and carried off, Abram knew he had to do something about it. So Abram launches a counterattack with just over 300 men. He recaptures Lot. He rescues the people, rescues the possessions, and he chases the, the uh, enemy kings out of the region. He chases them all the way up north. And he returns back home, the conquering hero and victor, with all of the people and all of their possessions in tow. 
And this moment, if you think about it, for Abram is a massive moment because he has just made huge progress in his growth as a nation and as a people. He's acquired all of these people now because he has saved them, redeemed them. They are his, all of these possessions, they are his. This would be a huge step forward for the people of God, would it not? So when Abram returns, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, they come out to meet him. And the king of Salem is a high priest king named Melchizedek. And he is a priest of the Most High God, of Yahweh. And he speaks a blessing over Abram. In response, Abram gives him a tenth of everything that he has reclaimed. And that is what the tithe is, and we'll talk about that more later. The king of Sodom, however, the king of Sodom comes out, and he does not bless Abram. He does not even thank Abram. He just says, I'll take the people back, but you go ahead and keep all the possessions. And some of y'all heard it the way Abram heard it. Keep the possessions? Bro, you lost the possessions. The possessions are my possessions. You don't get to tell me what I do with what I have claimed from my victory. You don't get to take credit for what the Lord said he would do. See, this set Abram on fire. He said, no, 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 no. In fact, I raise my hand to God. I will not take a single thread, not even a strap of a sandal from you, lest you say that you have made Abram rich. Uh-uh. God promised me, not you. I don't want any of it. Take it all back. Yeah. Which is the right response. And then you're like, dang. That really would have helped. Having all that stuff. God's is going to make me rich. Did I blow it? But Abram remembered that trusting God is what got him here in the first place. So trusting God will get him to where he's going in the next place. <laughs> Abram did everything right. He did everything right. He was a hero. He was a redeemer. He saved people. He honored the Lord. He honored his word. He kept his faith. He did everything right. And at the end of it, he's got nothing to show for it. Well, I wonder if you've ever been there in your life where you have done everything you know to be right, everything that you know how to do, everything God has called you to do, and you still feel like you've got nothing to show for it. You feel like you're still no closer to the goal than when you started. The money is tighter than ever. The prospects are fewer than ever. The sin is greater than ever. And you've been holding on to the promise, but you're starting to lose hope. And it's starting to feel like everything is slipping out of your fingers. That's where I believe Abram was in this moment, which is why the Lord comes to him and says, fear not, I am your shield, your reward. It will be very great. In a moment when Abram feels exposed, discouraged, and afraid, the Lord comes to him and says, you're not exposed, you're covered. I am your shield. I will guard you, I will protect you, I will fence you in and keep you. See, the difference between Abram and Adam and Eve is Adam and Eve felt uncovered before the Lord and so they felt fear as a result. The Lord comes to Abraham and says, I will cover you so therefore you don't have to fear. Maybe you need to hear it this morning. 
But if you've ever felt like Abram has felt before and you're walking in the will of the Lord, then you need to know that the word of God for him can be the word of God for you. You don't need to fear where the resources are coming from. He will shield you. You don't need to fear where the children are going or where they're coming. The Lord God will cover you. You don't need to fear when the promise will come to pass. The Lord your God is shielding you. He is keeping you from harm. Yes, he is the promise maker, but he is also somebody, the promise keeper. He is the first, but he's also the last. He's the author, but he's also the finisher. And if he made a promise to you, you can be sure the promise will come to pass through him. For he is not a man that he should lie, nor is he the son of man that he should change his mind. He is the faithful one. He is the deliverer. His plans are not to destroy you. They are to bless you. And as King David said, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I wonder if you can testify to the fact that even when you're afraid, you have a God that is shielding you. You have a God that is covering you. And the word of the Lord says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. The Lord your God will shield you. And your reward, the one I promised you, oh, it will be very great. You don't need to worry about that. Some translations translate it like this. I am your shield your exceedingly great reward. And they put those two ideas together, that not only is the Lord God your shield, but he is also your reward. That in the end, as long as you stay faithful to him, you will get him and everything he has. And that is a word we need to remember when it's dark and when it's hard and when you're tired and you're running out of faith. Do not be afraid. I am shielding you from danger seen and unseen. I am watching over you even as you sleep. And yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil for the Lord your God is with you. His rod and his staff will comfort you. The Lord your God is shielding you. That's why God can say over and over again, do not be afraid. We're always afraid of the unknown, of what might happen, of what we don't see. And God is saying, look at what is happening. I am shielding you. I am covering you. I am protecting you. I always have been and I always will be. Don't be afraid. Fear comes as a result of the fall, but God commands us to fear not, for he will be our shield and our protection. Now, the first time we see the fear of God, it comes as a result of an act of radical obedience in the face of dire circumstances. How's that for a transition sentence? This is the fear of God. The first time we see someone acknowledged for their fear of God is when Abram, who is now called Abraham, is asked by God to take his son Isaac up the side of Mount Moriah to be sacrificed to the Lord. And what's so significant about that, there's a lot of things significant about this. One, it it's, appears to be an utterly bizarre request from the Lord. Like, just... Isaac is the promised child. He is, he is the one God promised to Abram. And it took them a long time, if you know the story, to, to have him. And then they have him. And the Lord is saying, now let's put him to death. And there's a lot of things in that, which is like, first of all, Lord, you do not delight in human death. You have never required human sacrifice. And you, you work for your plans. You don't work against your plans. And Isaac is the proof of your promise. So if you're Abraham, you are justified, I believe, to have some serious questions about this request. 
some serious doubts. And you would think that Abraham at this point would push back a little bit and say, well, well, surely, surely, Lord, surely there's another way. Surely that's is not it. But he doesn't. What does he do? He chooses to trust the Lord and obey because he remembers that trusting God is what got him here. So trusting God is what will get him there. Sometimes fearing the Lord looks like acts of radical obedience, of saying yes to God, even though it doesn't make sense, of trusting him even when you have a lot of doubts, of doing what he asks you to do even when you really don't want to. So Abraham takes Isaac up the side of Mount Moriah. He binds him and places him on the altar. The promise literally set upon the altar of God. And as Abraham raises his hand to strike his son, the voice of the Lord calls out to him in Genesis 22, verse 12. God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The evidence that you fear God will be shown through what you are willing to sacrifice for him. Abraham was willing to give up his son, his only son, but not just the son. Abraham was willing to give up the promise, the thing God had told him would come to pass, and he was willing to do it because he trusted the Lord would be faithful in ways even if he didn't understand what those ways would mean or what they would be. Now what Abraham didn't know was that, the Lord, that when the Lord was asking him to sacrifice his son, the Lord was testing him. It says as plain as day in scripture. And I believe God wanted to see if Abraham loved the promise more than he loved the promiser. Now I just spoke about how God is faithful to do what he's promised to do, and he is. And I just spoke about how God is faithful to give you what he said he's going to give you, and he is. But the question isn't about what God is faithful to do. The question is about what you're faithful to do. The question is not about God's love. It's about your love. Are you willing to lay down what he promised you if it means you get to keep him? Are you willing to take a step of radical obedience to God, trusting him for the simple reason that he's worth it. Not obedience because you're gonna get a greater blessing, obedience because that means you get him. (laughs) We all are challenged by the question at one point or another, what am I willing to sacrifice for the Lord? What am I willing to lay on the altar? But the better question beyond what are you willing to lay on the altar, is what is God asking you to lay on the altar? Sometimes the fear of the Lord looks like obedience without understanding. To do what God has asked you to do, even when you don't want to do it, even when you disagree with it. Because fearing God means that you acknowledge that this supreme and sovereign creator knows better than you. It acknowledges his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. He might know something I don't know, which means that fearing God requires tremendous faith. And it requires the courage to be obedient. It takes boldness to fear the Lord. It takes courage. It takes a fire down in your belly and a conviction that you deeply believe that he is worth more than everything else combined. Will you humble yourself before him to do what he's asked you to do? Because the evidence of how much you fear the Lord will be seen by what you are willing to sacrifice for him. And that level of faith is a faith that comes 
only by knowing him. I want to look back over these stories as I close. And I want you to see what scripture proves to be true about the character of God and his trustworthiness. Look at how God responds in every story we've talked about today. In the garden, instead of making Adam and Eve pay the penalty for their sin in that moment, instead of striking them dead before him, for hiding from him, for being afraid of him, what does God do? He shows them the first act of mercy. He sends them from his presence. And then he begins a redemptive storyline to redeem them and all of humanity back to himself. He says, I could end it right here. In fact, that's what's deserved. But I will show mercy in light of your sin. When we sin and when we are afraid of God, he responds with mercy. To Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and all these people with me have unclean lips and I've seen the Lord. What does the Lord do? He brings a coal of fire. He places it in Isaiah's mouth and he purifies him. When we confess our sin to the Lord, he purifies us and he forgives us. With Abram, he shields him from harm by providing him a ram in the thicket, another who would die in the place of Isaac. And when God requires a sacrifice, he provides the sacrifice for us. And he offers another to die in the place of Abraham's son. And he provides another to die in our place. This is the nature and the character of God. So I don't just fear him because he's powerful, although he is. I don't just fear him because he judges sin, although he does. And I don't just fear him because he's awesome, although he is more awesome than you can ever imagine. I fear him because in light of all of that, out of patience and loving kindness, he makes a way for me to know him. He gives me a chance to respond to him. He allows me to see myself and to see him. And he gives me a moment to decide, what do I want more? Everything the world has to offer me? Everything that has led me to where I am right now? Or do I want him? The faithful one, the righteous one, the loving one, the eternal one. What do I want more? Will my sin leave me in fear? Or will seeing the king lead me to repentance? That's the question. What do you want it is what you have enough. What does it profit a man to gain the world if he loses his soul? I want the fear of the Lord to be our portion so that we would walk upright before him, so that we could inherit all that he has promised to us, so that we could walk under his covering and in fellowship with him, like Adam and Eve did, walking in the garden in the cool of the day with the Lord God at our side. If we were a people, if you were a husband, if you were a wife, if you were a believer who lived your life fearing God, seeing him as he is and honoring him as such, do you realize the favor and the blessing you would go through life with? Not afraid of God or afraid of the world, but confident in the one who created all things and is holding all things together. Fear is the greatest limiter in life. 
But love is the greatest activator. Love will make you do crazy things. And it will make you do amazing things. And it will allow you to walk in joy and life and hope before the Lord. When you walk in love, the weight of the world lifts off of your shoulders. When you walk in fear, it weighs you down. And when you realize that everything you fear is afraid of God, you don't feel so afraid anymore. So Lord, we receive your perfect love. We acknowledge our sin before you. We may have repented every day of our life, but Lord, we're before you again, repenting again for our sin, for our hearts. They are prone to wander. But thank you, Jesus, you allow us to wander back home. Forgive us, Lord. Purify us, cleanse us, make us clean, make us new.